Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Good to be back and uh, continuing our study in the Gospel of John. If you'll take your Bibles and turn there to John chapter 7. We started this back in June and we have made our way to the seventh chapter of John. We are visit those visiting with us that we do we do a verse by verse study of different books of the Bible and uh, this is the book that we are studying this year and uh, last year and into this coming year as well. John chapter 7, we'll pick up where we left off last year, in fact. We'll go to John 7, and uh, you recall John 6, that is a great chapter. John 6 is an absolutely great chapter. All of them are great, but this, especially John 6, I um, was kind of sad we were leaving it because there were just so many great truths there and just so many uh, things that challenged us in John chapter Six. Um, you recall John 6 started out with 20,000 people following Jesus, and like I said on Christmas Eve, he ended up with 12 when it was done. That's just a bad preacher in the world's terms. But he ended up with 12 people, 12 men, uh, when everyone else had turned away because the words Jesus said were just too hard. And you must understand that. People had no problem with the works of Jesus. They all liked his miracles. They all liked the compassion he showed. But they did not like his words. His words were what got him in trouble with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders and the population as well. His words, because his words were hard. People patronize Jesus today. Good teacher, good man, a great example, all of these nice things they would say, but his words, his words that he spoke, they just seem to overlook those or they just avoid certain things he said. They, they'll talk about his love and compassion and never t- say a word about the doctrine of hell, which he spoke a lot about, the doctrine of sin, which he spoke a lot about. They'll leave those things out conveniently and they will just create a Jesus that they're comfortable with uh, and the kind of Jesus they want to have. But Jesus said hard things, and as a result, he ends up with only 12 people, 12 men at the end of the book of John. Uh, He turns to them and says to them, are you two going to leave me? And Peter speaks up and says, where are we going to go? You're the only one that has the words of eternal life. Uh, We've evaluated everything that's out there, and you're it. You're all there is. You're the only hope we have. The people turned against him, you might recall, because he said things about, you must come to me and believe in me. And that's still the message. You must come to him and believe in him. But what Jesus did in John chapter 6 was he defined what coming to him and believing him for eternal life means. It means you eat my body and it means you drink drink my blood. I'm the bread from out of heaven. He wasn't talking about communion, by the way. That's not a communion passage. He's talking about you you must be so intimately involved with me. You must be in one, one with me. That's what believing in me means. It means that you are getting all of your satisfaction, all of your meaning for life from me. It's a total commitment to me. You've got to admit, when you eat something and drink it, you are taking it in. That is a commitment you're making to it. 
So when he defined what this believing and coming was, that is when people started turning away. These words are too hard. And many walked with him no more, we're told at the end of John chapter 6. You must give up all your autonomy. You must give up all your self-sufficiency, and you must follow me. Those are his words. And that offended that culture that offends our culture today as well. It's not just some mental assent to some facts about a man named Jesus and a cross and blood being shed on that cross. It's not just assenting to that. It's much more as Jesus showed us in John chapter 6. It's saying, I don't care if my family is offended. I don't care if the world and the culture are offended. I don't care if I'm offended. I will follow him. Very strong message in John 6. And to make it even a stronger message, he says, you can't even believe in me unless the Father draws you. You can't even believe in me unless I'm given to the given unless you are given to me by the Father. So in that very passage of John chapter 6, we had to deal with the subject of Jesus statements talking about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty, God initiates this believing. Uh, and the human responsibility is I must believe. I can't reconcile those things. No one can reconcile those things. They're in the mind of the infinite God. He has put them on the pages of Scripture for us to recognize and to believe. They run side by side, and we simply affirm them, as difficult as they may be, to reconcile together. But that's not our job, to reconcile those things. And we come to chapter 7 this morning. We come to chapter 7 realizing that chapter 7 is, uh, we're told in verse 1, after these things. In chapter 7, we are seven or six months uh, have passed since the event of chapter 6. Six months have passed, and, uh, and the way we know that is because the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 and the Feast of the Booths that we're going to see here in chapter 7, uh, one's in April, one's in September, about six months have passed between those events. And we know very little about what happened during that period of time. We do get some ideas from the gospel writers, the other gospel writers, the synoptic gospel writers. We know that the Mount of Transfiguration took place during that time. We know that Jesus told his disciples that he must go and be crucified and he will die. We know there were many other miracles that occurred during that time. You can read those in the synoptics. When it says in verse 1 that, he, that Jesus um, was unwilling to walk in Judea, excuse me, he was walking in Galilee, uh, Jesus is walking in Galilee. We know he's been there for about a year total, making quick trips down to Judea. The reason for that, we are told there in that verse, is because it was dangerous to go to Judea. You see that in verse 1. We, we know that the reason that it was dangerous is because you can go back to 518, chapter 5, verse 18. For this reason, therefore, 
the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he is not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Two reasons they wanted to kill him. Two reasons. Not to mention the popularity and the stirring up of the people that he had gained, but also the fact that he was violating the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath. And secondly, 5.18 tells us he was making himself equal to God. He was making that claim. Chapter 5, great chapter to see the deity of Christ and his equality to God and the fact that he is God. And so you had this chronological timetable in, chat, in verse 1. You basically have the feeding of the 5,000, John chapter 6. You have, that was in April. Now we're coming to September, and that's the Feast of the Booths. You see that we're going to be talking about the Feast of the Booths a little bit this morning. That's in, that's in October. We're told in chapter 10 about the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah means, to dedicate, a rededication of the temple. That's in John chapter 10. And then in the spring, the next Passover, he'll be on the cross and rising, and, and rising from the dead, the resurrection. So we are in the last months of Jesus' life here in John chapter 7. We're on the divine timetable. Uh, that is what you're going to see this morning as well in John 7. But Jesus was staying in primarily Galilee, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 7, because he did not want to put himself in a position that would be a way, again, going against the divine timetable because they wanted to kill him. He did not want to make himself available to that arrest and to that crucifixion that they were looking to do. And so, just to kind of give you some chronology there and where we're at in John chapter 7, we now come to verse 2. Verse 2 says, now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, you can also call that the feast of tabernacles, uh, the feast of tents, they call it as well, but that, that was near. This is going on in Jerusalem now, not in Galilee. This is what's happening down in Jerusalem. The feast of the Jews, the feast of the booths was near. Uh, this was a, a God had ordained this, God had uh, prescribed this to the Jews that they celebrate this feast. It was one of the main feasts of the year. You had the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of the Booths. Uh, Every Jewish male is required to go to these feasts in Jerusalem. The Feast of the Booths was unique. It was a, a big celebration. It was a place where they would put up tents and stay in those tents as a reminder of what their the Israelites did in going through the wilderness for 40 years to remind them of God's provision for them in the wilderness. Just a reminder of that. It was also a season of, it was of the harvest where the grapes and the olives were starting to come in. So there was also a time of thankfulness and celebration over God's provision of the rains that brought, a, brought forth all those fruits. And so it was a big celebration. One, one writer even said that it was like a big tailgating party in some ways around the temple in Jerusalem. Um, uh, A lot of celebration going on. A very happy time in the city of Jerusalem. You have lots of people from all over the world would come to the city to celebrate that. Uh, You see in in this verse as well that 
just a little history about it. It came two weeks after the Day of Atonement, which is a very, which is a very important day as well. It had two ceremonies associated with it that involved water and light. Jesus is going to associate himself with both of those as we go through John 7 and John 8. So Jesus picks up on what's going on uh, in their culture, what's going on in their um, celebrations at that time. He has some family turmoil in verse 3 that I want to highlight for you. In verse 3 of John 7, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea. Go down there for that celebration. Go down there for the feast of the booze, so that your disciples may see your works which you are doing. A couple things you notice. Jesus had brothers. and In fact, we are told in Matthew 13 their names. His brother's names, 1355, say were James, Simon, Joseph, and Judas. Not Iscariots, but Judas, who later changed his name to Jude. But those were his brothers. So Mary and Joseph had other children. Uh, Mary was kept a virgin for the birth of Christ, but that's not true for the rest of her life. Uh, she had other children children. She conceived them the normal way. Contrary to those who would say she was a perpetual virgin, that is not true. She had other children. It's very possible that his brothers are somewhat intimidated by him. I say that because of what the, re- the request they're about to make of him. There's some, something about being raised with the Son of God that might cause intimidation, I'm sure, but the point is he is Uh, the conversation here is interesting. Look how this goes. They're telling him, go down to Judea, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. It's kind of a a self-evident statement, an axiom. It's it's the idea that uh, if you want to further your cause, if you want to make inroads in your, your, your mission, then it makes more sense to go down to Jerusalem to do that than to do that up here in Galilee. Galilee is nowhere. Judea is where it's happening. It's like you see an aspiring musician. You don't you say, get out of Tallahassee, go to Nashville, right? Or go to New York, or go to Los Angeles. Go somewhere where you can prove yourself. Go somewhere where you can be on the stage that is necessary to define your talent, Kind of the same idea here. Jesus, go down to Jerusalem. And, and, and here's that, what's probably going on. The verdict on your life, the verdict on your life will be proven down there. Because they have doubts about who he is themselves. They're seeing the crowds. They're seeing the miracles. They're seeing the opposition. And they're saying, you need to go down there. And you need to... Let what happens down there define you. Be the verdict on your life and on your mission. You need to prove to your disciples that you're who you say you are. They need to see that. Uh, You see his brothers telling him, get down there and get this thing settled. Don't think it's going to happen up here in Galilee. Some have suggested that maybe they wanted him to go down there to get killed. I don't think that's true. There's no reason to assume that motive on them. I think they truly wanted to have the verdict determine on who he was. 
Verse 5 says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. You see that. They weren't believers. We're told in Mark's account, Mark 3.21, that Jesus is uh, doing ministry and he's in a a certain location and uh, his his family members hear about the opposition he's facing. They hear about people accusing him of having a demon. They, They hear him making all these claims and his brothers go to do some intervention. Mark 3.21, when his own people heard of this, they went to, out to take custody of him. This is kinsman, his family, for they were saying he has lost his senses. This is during the ministry of Christ. This is probably about a year before this scene. We see in Mark 3.31, his mother and brothers arrived at that house, standing outside. They sent word to him and called him. They, they came to get him. We think he might be crazy in his claims. So listen, get this thing settled. Take your act to the big stage down in Jerusalem. That's what they're saying. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. I'm on a divine timetable. This is not my time. It's not my time. You go to the feast, but my time is... I believe in the context here, he's talking about my time is six months from now. My time to make a grand entrance into Jerusalem is six months from now. The triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. I believe that's what he's alluding to here. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because of my words. See, it's right there. Because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. You have the opportunity, you go down there, I don't right now, I don't right now. That's not the divine timetable for me to go down there and to make some kind of presentation of myself to Jerusalem. Because the world hates me, I speak against it. My words are a stumbling block to the world. That's how it's going to be, Christian, that's how it's going to be. If you're going to identify with Christ, if it's for, if for you to live as Christ, your words are going to offend. Not because they're your words, they're his words. Truth offends. I can say it in a loving way, I can say it in a way that shows care and concern, but the reality is we say things the world does not want to hear. And that was what Jesus experienced as well. Verse 8 He tells them, go up to the feast for yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. You see that in verse 8? Once again, this divine timetable. I don't go up. My time is not here. And let me just say this. When they would travel, it would be in a large caravan. If you go and read about the time when Jesus was 12, it was a large caravan of family and relatives that would travel. It was a large caravan of friends that would join in on that journey in. There was already be a lot of attention given to Jesus just going down there. Crowds would draw around him. That's what he's speaking about here. I, that is not, it is not my time to do that. It is not my time to have this entrance into Jerusalem like that. I don't want the Palm Sunday type reception. Then verse 9 is interesting, makes verse 9 even more interesting. Just before I say this about verse 9, let me just say his brothers do eventually convert, by the way. His brothers do eventually become believers. 
We're told in Acts 1.14 that in the upper room, when Jesus, uh, when uh, the upper room event in Acts chapter 1, his brothers and Mary, his mother, are there. We know his brother James wrote the gospel of James, and James was also the leader of the Jerusalem church later. We also know that his brother Jude was a Christian. His brother Jude wrote the book of Jude. I just say that to let you know, eventually they do become believers. At the, uh, when Christ appeared in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to his brother James. So just to give you a future note on what happens to that family, they do become believers. So having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. Verse 10 of John 7. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, notice, about face here, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. You see that? That's why I made the big point about the Palm Sunday type entrance. That's not what he was going to do. That's what his brothers were implying he do. He wasn't going to do that. That's not my divine timetable. You can look at it this way. Verse 9, the wrong time. Verse 10, the right time. Uh, You can look at it this way. I'm not going to go up means I'm not going to go up in the manner in which you want me to go up to Jerusalem. I'm not going to make a grand scene. So when Jesus goes, we're told in, I believe it's in Luke 9, when Jesus does go down to the Feast of Booths, It's interesting, he travels not the normal route. He travels the route that goes through Samaria. Most Jews would avoid Samaria. Jesus does not. He is going secretly, he goes through Samaria. His brothers and everybody else would have gone around Samaria to get to Jerusalem. Interesting note. Verse 11 The Jews in Jerusalem were seeking him at the feast. They were saying, where is he? They've heard about him. They know of him. He's the talk on everybody's lips. Uh, We know he'll be here at this feast. Every male was required to attend these feasts. We know he will be here. Where is he? They're looking for him. Where is that miracle worker? Verse 12, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Listen, he is the talk of everybody. People grumble about him. People complain about him. Some people even like him. But he is on everybody's lips. He's in every discussion. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no on the contrary. He leads people astray. All kinds of opinions about Jesus. Good man, false teacher, or whatever. Jesus is a dividing line. He's a dividing line between believing and not believing. But he gets patronized a lot. He gets patronized by a lot of people. Patronizing Jesus will not take you to heaven. Saying he's a good man will not take you to heaven. A lot of people believe that he is a good man, but he claimed to be God, and if he's lying about that, he's not a good man. Verse 13 says, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. The Jews basically had said, you'll get kicked out of the synagogue. How do we know that? John 9 is going to tell us that. 
You speak favorably about Jesus. You talk about Jesus in, uh, in a positive way. You make much of Jesus in any way. You'll be thrown out of the synagogue. No Jew wants to get thrown out of the synagogue. That's the center of worship. That's the center of uh, your social life. It's to be ostracized from your community. And so there is fear of speaking openly about him. Verse 14 says, but when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple. Okay, the midst of the feast, that would probably be Wednesday. The feast went from Sabbath to Sabbath, Saturday to Saturday. The midst of that, maybe we're talking the middle of the week. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he has kept himself secret from everyone, but then he does something very unsecretive. He goes up to the temple to to preach. (laughs) I tell you what. He is not um, trying to hide at this moment at all. He makes himself very public. And this was common for a rabbi. Many rabbis would go and find a little area in the temple and begin to teach. That was common. So there'd be many people up there teaching, not just Jesus. But there's Jesus. There's that miracle worker. There's that one we've been looking for. He's standing up there and he's talking. And the Jews were astonished, verse 15 says, saying, how, how does this man uh, become learned? He's never been uh, educated. He hasn't been schooled in our schools. He hasn't attended our uh, classes. He hasn't been taught by our institutions, the rabbinical schools. Because he did not teach like they taught. Understand that. He, he taught we're told in, in Matthew's account, we'll be later told in this account, he speaks like nobody ever spoke before. He did not quote a lot of people. He didn't quote like I do, you know, others. We, you know, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to uh, rely on any other sources for anything. Jesus spoke. He spoke with clarity. He was clear. And he spoke with authority. And he, he did it like no one else did. I mean, we're talking about a culture that relied heavily on oratory. And he spoke so clearly. Man. Verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So he's defending his authority. He's speaking to where his authority comes from. He's not saying I'm self-taught. He's not saying I have self-knowledge. He's not saying I didn't, he's saying I did not make this stuff up. It is not my opinion. I'm not quoting rabbis. I am quoting God. I'm giving you divine knowledge. Divine knowledge. He is defending what he is doing. He is defending what he is saying. He is speaking with authority. And his authority is from God. Verse 17, interesting verse. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Here's the reason you guys are not receiving my message. Get this, folks. The reason you are not receiving my message is because you have an unwillingness in your heart to do what God says. It's going to be a very important statement this morning. This is where salvation begins. I have a willingness to do what God says. 
I am motivated by a desire to do what God wants, what God commands. Let me read to you something from Adolf Huxley. You remember him, uh, Brave New World guy, wrote the book Brave New World, atheist. He had some interesting things to say that reveal uh, what, this point beautifully. In his book, Ends and Means, he says, I had motives. This is an unbeliever speaking. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assume that it had none and was, was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem of pure, in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the, immoral, to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. See what he's saying? The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning of Christian. Uh, let me skip that for a moment. We don't know because we don't want to know. We don't know because we don't want to know. It is our will that decides how and upon what subjects we shall use our intelligence. Those who detect no meaning in the world generally do so because for, no, for one reason or other, it suits their books and, their, and that the world should be meaningless. He was asked this question, do you, why do you believe in evolution? And he said this, the only other explanation is divine creation. If God made me, then that means I have to obey him and I don't want to give up the immoral relationship with the woman that I am with. Do you see the point here when I'm making? There is not a willingness to do what God wants. In fact, it's like Romans 1. They suppressed the truth. They deny the obvious and speculate. One Canadian writer said this, Huxley rejected God not because he didn't understand the reasoning behind Christianity or because he thought unbelief was more logical. Instead, he admittedly rejects it because it's more convenient to do so. It means life does not have a higher meaning than the pursuit of animalistic urges than that we are accountable to a higher judge. And he said, I don't want to be accountable to anyone. See, it's not an information issue. Understand that. We sometimes think it is. If I can just give them more information or apologetic issue, if I can just prove this to them, no, it goes deeper than that. It's the unwillingness to do what God says and what God commands. That's the root of it. Jesus points that out here. The reason you don't receive me, the reason you don't receive my words as coming from God or having any reason for you to be accountable to them is that you do not want to do what God says. It's very important. And unbelief is not an intellectual issue. 
The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Why? Because he, he figured that out intellectually? No. He goes into the next verses, his immorality. It's a moral issue. I will have to submit to him to do what he says, and I don't want to do that. It's an authority issue. I will have to submit, and I love my sin more. And that's the issue Jesus is pointing out. Faith, see, faith acts when you hear the truth and seek to do his will. I want to do that. My life is an absolute wreck. My life is a mess. I've made a mess of my life. I hate my life. I hate the way I'm living my life. I hear the message of the, from God, God's word. I say to myself, God, I want that. I will do whatever you say. I want to do what you say to do. I'm tired of listening to me, God. I want, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to listen to you. That is the beginning of a heart of faith. I'm willing to do whatever. I've come to the end of me, and I want you. I'm tired of all my explaining it all away just so I can justify my sin. I want to do, I want you. I want to do what you say. I'm tired of listening to me. I'm tired of listening to the world. I want to listen to you. See, that's where faith begins. So Jesus is saying, you will know. You would know this is from God if you were willing to do what God said, but you are not willing to do what God wants. Therefore, you're unwilling to believe. Don't make it an information issue. Don't make it that way. It's not. Tons of information out there. They know. They, they know. doesn't mean I don't share the gospel. Of course I share the gospel. It doesn't mean that. It just simply means don't think that that's the obstacle. Much deeper. Jesus makes that real clear here. God grants light. God grants light when a man is anxious to walk according to the light. I don't know who said that, but that's a good quote. God grants light when a man is anxious to walk according to the light. I am so anxious to walk according to the light. God grants light. It's costly to believe. Understand something. It's costly to believe. Remember the rich young ruler? Very rich guy. How can I have eternal life? Jesus tells him, oh, that's too costly. I'm not willing to do that. And walks away. You follow me? Jesus gave him all the information. I'm not willing. Costs too much. Verse 18, he just makes this quick statement. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he was seeking the glory of the one who sent him. He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Talking about him being a true, true teacher because he's not seeking his own glory. False teachers seek their own glory. But I want to make a connection between the next verse and what I just said to you in verse 17. You're not, will, you're not, willing, to do, you're not willing to do what God wants. Case in point, case in point, verse 19, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? He's making no friends right now because the Jews 
think they keep it and they keep it well. That's how they thought. The Jewish religious leaders especially thought we do this and we do it well. And yes, he did give it to us. We are the keepers of it. All of that stuff. He says, here's, here's my case in point. You have the law and you do not obey it. Case in point, why do you seek to kill me? Case in point, Exodus 20, 13, do not murder. Why do you want to kill me? You're not willing to do the law. <laughs> you want to kill me. This crowd is strange. This crowd around Jesus is strange. You've got people from everywhere. Now you've got people in the crowd. There's a segment of the crowd that says, who's trying to kill you? You've got a demon thinking that way when it becomes very evident in other places they're going to try to kill him. But his point is, more turmoil in the crowd. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, and now he begins to defend, um, he begins to defend the Sabbath healing violation of John 5. That's what he's doing. Uh, John 5, yeah, uh, am I right? John, yeah, John 5, John 5. The last time he was, I was in Jerusalem, you called me out on this. You sought to kill me because of this, John 5, 18. You sought to kill me because I claimed to be God. I had the authority to do on the Sabbath what I did. And you have since then wanted to kill me. That, that was the healing of the man at the pool of Siloam where the man had been there for 38 years and Jesus told him to get up, pick up his mat and walk. And it was the Sabbath. Verse 22 For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. He uses this example. He says, on that day, on that day, I did a medical, quote, medical miracle. Let's just use that terminology. He's not saying that. I'm saying that. I I did a medical type miracle. Verse 22, for this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers, passed on from Abraham. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. Now think about this. Arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, he's saying from the law of Moses, the identifying mark of the Jew, Jewish man would be circumcision. A baby male is to be circumcised on the eighth day of, after he's born. Sometimes that eighth day fell on the Sabbath. He's saying, you circumcise on the Sabbath. You do a medical, you do a medical procedure for a person's life on the Sabbath. Verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? He's going from the lesser to the greater. This whole man's life was healed and you're making a circumcision something that's much more important than the healing of a man's life, affecting his whole being. If it's right to make a Jewish boy a full Jew on the Sabbath, how wrong can it be for me to make a sick man whole on the Sabbath? And the Jews were inconsistent with this. I've told you this before. If your animal fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, it's okay to go get him out because you're going to need that animal. If, uh, if, you, if someone cut off their arm, it's okay to give medical attention to that person. That's inconsistent right there. 
But that's what legalism does. It just tries to make everything fit. And that's why Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Stop being a hypocrite. But that's what they were. They were hypocrites. They did not even live up to what they were saying. They did not even live up to what they said they believed. And they're ready to kill Jesus because of it. In this sermon, Jesus is going to cry out to them to believe in him. He's going to cry out to them to repent. He's going to pronounce judgment on them. We'll see all that next time. But just understand this, that Jesus says, if any man will seek me, he will find me. If that is your heart this morning, that you want Christ, you want to follow Christ, that you want to obey Christ, I believe with all my heart that he will shed, give you the light, further light in that desire. I believe that he will fully make it known to those who really want to obey him. He'll grant them and bring them to salvation. But you look at your own heart. Do you have a willing heart? Do you have a willing heart? Are you willing to pay the price to follow Christ? Are you willing, are you willing to do what he says in following him? That's the point of this passage this morning. You guys are blind. You guys will not see the truth because you're not willing to do what God says. You say you are, but you're not. You're not. Father, thank you for this time this morning. I pray, God, that you would work in us to take these great truths to our own hearts this morning. If there's anyone here today, Lord, that does not know you, I pray, God, that your spirit would work in their heart, make them willing, draw them to willingness. I pray, Father, that you would open their eyes to their blindness, help them see, see the truth, and embrace the truth. We love you and thank you for this day. We thank you, God, for this table that we are about to partake in and what it means, what it represents, the greatest truths to ever be given to man. We thank you for them, God. In Jesus' name, amen.